hppodcraft.com. Millvale O2 by Repairer of Reputation. Available now on Bandcamp, playing now and throughout the episode. A soundtrack to a game that never existed for a system that was never released. The Panasonic M2. Escape to a different reality. Order now and get the Millvale Zine, a collection of information and art about the game. The album will be a Bandcamp exclusive until the end of the year, and podcast listeners can get 20% off anything on the Repairer of Reputations Bandcamp with the code PODCRAFT. Repairerofreputations.bandcamp.com. Plug in. It was from William P. Ryan, American newspaper correspondent, that I first heard of the affair. I was dining with him in London on the eve of his return to New York, and happened to mention that on the morrow I was going down to Fulbridge. He looked up and said sharply, Fulbridge? Cornwall? Now, only about one person in a thousand knows that there is a Fulbridge in Cornwall. They always take it for granted that the Fulbridge Hampshire is meant. So Ryan's knowledge aroused my curiosity. Yes, I said. Do you know it? He merely replied that he was darned. He then asked if I happened to know a house called Triarn down there. My interest increased. Very well indeed. In fact, it's to Triarn that I'm going. It's my sister's house. Well, if that doesn't beat the band. I suggested that he should cease making cryptic remarks and explain himself. Well, he said, to do that, I shall have to go back to an experience of mine at the beginning of the war. The war? The war? Which war? War of the Roses? War of 1812? The eugenics war? Fashion war? It's the fashion war. I think that's what it is. Our longest war. I've retired from that war. (laughs) Yeah, a long time ago. Those were the opening lines of Agatha Christie's The Hound of Death. Yes, The Hound of Death. This will be a nice change of pace from all the other hounds we've covered. Up to now, they've all been filled with light and hope. Uh, But this one is a hound of death. It's Halloween season. We thought we'd do something where the dog is scary for once. Oh, yeah. Change it up. Speaking of Halloween season, it's going to be a weird one. You can't really go out, but that's what makes it all the more important to create the right atmosphere in the home. You can do that by picking up Millvale O2, which we heard about at the very top Mm -hmm. just a second ago. But of course, the core of your Halloween playlist has to be Monster Classics by Pitch Black Manor. Absolutely. You know, I don't like to mention the band. That's my private life. Of course. I feel very vulnerable bringing it up. Sure. But I just feel like at this moment, I could save so many Halloweens by speaking out. Yeah. You can get the album on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music. Or do us a solid and buy it on Bandcamp. We're cooking up some extra treats for Halloween, so, you know, stay tuned. You're very brave, Chad. Thank you. To talk about these things. (sighs) So, who was that reader? Our reader is Kayla Murphy, international traveler and teacher. Oh, yeah, I know Kayla. I think think she came to my prom. What, just showed up? Yeah, back in the day, she was at my prom. I'm sure it was her. Did she go to school with us? No, she just came by. Oh, I I see. She's an international traveler, except for proms in East Moline. Okay. That's that's beneath Kayla. Is that what you're trying to say? I'm not saying that's beneath her. I'm just saying that I'm just trying to understand if she went to our school or if she was just traveling (laughs) the world and decided to drop by. A prom in 1991, 92, whichever prom you're talking about. The second one you said, yeah. Yeah. The more obvious one, the second one you said. (laughs) Okay, 
Well, good. Good to know. I hope she had a good time yeah. back then. If she was, she did. We met. Yeah. If she was even born then, she had a little too good of a time. A little <laughs> too good of a time, if you ask me. That's why I remember Caleb. <laughs> so let's get a little bio on this titan of literature, Agatha Christie. Yes, Titan is right. I'm looking at the back of one of her books right now, and it says she is the most widely published author of all time, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. Wow. Her books have sold more than a billion copies in English and another billion in a hundred foreign languages. She died in 19. 19- 76. Yeah. You know, they really should have put a line break in before that last sentence because it sounds like that's also a boast. You know, <laughs> she died in 1976, something nobody has accomplished in the years since. <laughs> she was Dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie, Lady Malawan, DBE, born in 1890, same year as H.P. Lovecraft. See how we're tying it together? Yeah, and I think that shows Lovecraft's level of accomplishment that he was able to be born in the very same year as Agatha Christie. Exactly. She was born in Devon. Feet few authors have accomplished. (laughs) She was born in Devon, youngest of three children. She had older siblings, so she spent much of her time playing alone or with pets. She took to reading at an early age, four by her accounts. She went to boarding school in the UK, but didn't like the strictness of it and ended up going to school in Paris when she was 15 for music, but didn't really take to that as well. Sounds like the problem was her. Her mother took ill. I'm and, just saying. And they went to Cairo, Egypt for the warmer climate in 1907. And you might think this is where she got into history and archeology, span but you'd be wrong. Yeah, I never think anything right. <laughs> She wrote her first story at the age of 18, The House of Beauty. She then wrote her first book, Snow Upon the Desert, uh, but publishers weren't interested in it. She was big on the social scene and she met Archibald Christie and they quickly got on well and they were soon married in 1914. Unfortunately, he was off to fight in the war, World War One. See how I specified? Yeah. Wasn't confused it was the fashion war this time, for once. <laughs> Agatha got into the war effort as well. She worked with the Red Cross, and after the war, the two of them moved to London. They both survived it. Agatha Christie loved detective novels. She was into Wilkie Collins. That was a favorite of hers, as well as the Sherlock Holmes stories. Her first detective novel was The Mysterious Affair at Styles in 1916, featuring Raquel Burrow, the famous Belgian detective, only slightly overshadowed by another fictional Belgian character, Jean-Claude Van Damme. No, he is not fictional. He's a real dude. I, I wrote a movie treatment for his daughter, which is actually the first like true thing I've said in a while. <laughs> it actually did happen. I remember you talking about that, but yeah, he's still yeah. not real. She had her first child in 1919. Motherhood did not stop this writing powerhouse, and she kept turning out the classics. Uh, this caught my eye. It said, Disappearance, 1926. Agatha Christie's husband fell in love with another woman and wanted a divorce. Agatha Christie then disappeared for 10 days. No one could find her. What they found was her car. It was discovered at Newlands Corner, parked above a chalk quarry with an expired driving license and clothes inside of it. Everybody went nuts. They were going crazy. Like, where's Agatha Christie? Turns out she was at a spa in Harrogate, hometown of Greg Johnson, under an assumed name, Mrs. Tressa Neal, which was the surname of her husband's lover. Oh, is there a movie about that? There must be. I love that, man. Yeah. That is such a cool move. She divorced him in 1928 and decided to take a trip on the Orient Express. The trip went to Istanbul and then Baghdad. She became friends with archaeologist Leonard Woolley and his wife on that trip. And then she took the trip again in 1930 and met a younger fella, 13 years younger than her, an archaeologist named Max 
Malawan. Now that trip went from Istanbul all the way to Cougar Town because she pounced on that guy. <laughs> they got married later that year. MI5 investigated her after she wrote the 1941 thriller N or M. They were worried British women were getting too awesome. <laughs> Better check into this. She was elected into the Royal Society of Literature in 1950. She was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1956. Lots of awards and accolades. She died, as you said, in 1976 in Oxfordshire. Here's a list of some of her books. Obviously, she created Perot and Miss Marple those characters, but obviously mm. the books Murder on the Orient Express, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Death on the Nile. Remember, I remember the movie adaptation of that when I was growing up was on HBO all the time. Yeah, that's in the Manimal universe, that it, Death on the Nile. It, <laughs> It is The Murder of the Vicarage, Partners in Crime, The ABC Murders, and then there were none, which had other names, which we're not going to talk about, and The Mousetrap. Yeah, I mean, amazing books, and um, I read, and then there were none. It was called Ten Little Indians when I read yes. it, although, as we've established before, it had another name when it kicked off, but um, I loved it. That's the only other Agatha Christie I've read. I have to admit, this is the first Agatha Christie I've ever read. Wow. Well, you've certainly seen some of the films, so you know what oh, you're yeah. for, you yeah, think, yeah. right? This one breaks expectations a little bit. Sure does. It begins with our narrator, Mr. Anstruther, talking to a news reporter named Ryan in London over for dinner. Mr. Anstruther is going to visit his sister in Fullbridge, Cornwall. And it's odd that uh, Ryan knows the place being talked about because there's a more famous Fullbridge. Ryan tells him about a story from World War One, where some Germans attempted to take over a convent in Belgium. At first, Anstruther thinks, oh man, please not a war story. You know, it just ended. I don't want to talk about it. And I really like the sentiment and can certainly empathize because, you know, I'm ready to slam my fist into the side of the planet like a jukebox, change it to anything else. <laughs> yeah. This whole siege was part of what was called the Rape of Belgium during World War I uh, by Germany. Belgium was supposed to be neutral and Germany wanted to use Belgium to get to France, but they refused because obviously neutral. Germany invaded Belgium and they did terrible things. The destruction of civilian property, 6,000 Belgians were killed and 17,700 died during expulsion, deportation, imprisonment, or death sentence by court. Another 3,000 Belgian civilians died due to electric fences. 3,000. Mm. It just blows my mind. Electric fences the German army put up to prevent civilians from fleeing the country, and 120,000 became forced laborers, with half of that number deported to Germany. 25,000 homes and other buildings, 837 communities were destroyed in 1914 alone, and 1.5 million Belgians, 20% of the entire population, fled from the invading German army. What a nightmare. Yeah. So yeah, this a uh, little historical framing there for you, what they're, what they're talking about. Now, I like this part of the story. He says, I shifted uneasily. William P. Ryan lifted a hand reassuringly. It's all right, he said. It isn't a German atrocity story. It might have been, perhaps, but it isn't. As a matter of fact, the boots on the other leg, the Huns made for that convent. They got there and the whole thing blew up. What a cool opening. Blast! It's funny because he said the whole thing blew up. I He means literally blew up. Like, I, I thought it was like a metaphorically blew up when I first read it. And then as he keeps describing things, I'm like, oh, wait, they actually exploded. I should say the Huns had been celebrating and had monkeyed around with their own explosives, but it seems they hadn't anything of that kind with them. They weren't the high explosive Johnnies. That's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> well, then I ask you, what should a pack of nuns know about high explosive? Some nuns, I should say. What, what? Your interpretation of that character was exactly the same as Christopher 
Christopher Lee's when he did the reading of this. Even down to the what what I threw yeah. in? Yeah, he threw that in too. We're brothers. Now no Spiritual one <laughs> now no one is sure how this whole thing happened as the German soldiers didn't have any explosives on them. So the people living around there think that it's a modern miracle. One of the nuns had a really high reputation. She was a budding saint almost. At least that's what people said around there. And it was said that she had called down lightning to kill the attackers. Holy metal. <laughs> I This was my first time ago. This is Agatha Christie. She's got a bad habit of making lightning strike. <laughs> now, where the explosion happened, there was black powder mark on one of the walls that was left there. And it's the shape of a great hound. And folks in those parts called it the Hound of Death. The Hound of Death stalks its prey in the night. <laughs> That super nun, she fled Belgium as a refugee and moved to England. Mr. Anstruther says that his sister took in nun refugees. Wait a minute. Are we talking about the same explosive super nun? <laughs> Ryan says he always meant to follow up, but Cornwall is pretty out of the way, so he never got around to it. Truth is, Cornwall is out of the way. I'm afraid I only investigated the super nuns that were closer to home. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> he asked Mr. Anstruther if he finds anything interesting about her, if she's actually down there, let him know. Mm, yeah, since he was too lazy to follow up. Exactly. You do the work for me. So we cut to Mr. Anstruther in uh, Triarn having lunch with his sister. On his second day in town, he finally asks about this nun. Turns out, yep, she was there. Sister Marie Angelique. She was a strange woman, his sister recalls, but now she's under the care of a young doctor by the name of Rose. Mm, I think it's Rose. <laughs> like the fine boxed wine. <laughs> Seems Sister Marie Angelique was having hallucinations and other issues. His sister says, she looks the sort of person who could blast you, if you know what I mean. And then I was really surprised that Agatha Christie had the narrator say, no, what the f*** are you talking about? <laughs> that line really shocked me. It kind of seemed out of place. Yeah, it does. He arranges to meet Dr. Rose, who seems to be a pleasant enough guy, but there is something about him that's slightly off-putting. says, there was something about his personality that rather repelled me. It was too forceful to be altogether agreeable. He gives Dr. Rose the story about Marie, and he seems to understand. Ah, that explains a great deal, he says. He says that when she arrived, she had obviously suffered from some kind of mental shock. She had hallucinations that were just kind of out there. Dr. Rose thinks that Mr. Anstruther should meet with her, and he agrees. Now, she's staying with a local district nurse in a little cottage. Good evening, nurse. How's your patient? Called out the doctor. She's much as usual, doctor. Just sitting there with her hands folded and her mind far away. Often enough, she'll not answer when I speak to her, though for the matter of that, it's little enough English she understands even now. Rose nodded, and as the nurse bicycled away, he went up to the cottage door, rapped sharply, and entered. Sister Marie Angelique was lying in a long chair near the window. She turned her head as we entered. It was a strange face, pale, transparent-looking with enormous eyes. There seemed to be an infinitude of tragedy in those eyes. She says, good evening, Monsieur le Docteur, which is uh, French for doctor, <laughs> Belgian. <laughs> Dr. Rose comes in and talks to her gently and asks her about her dreams. He asks if she had dreams about Belgium. She says, no, I dream of a country that never existed. She sees Mr. Anstruther and thinks he's a doctor, but Dr. Rose explains, no, no, he knows something about what happened back in Belgium. But Mr. Anstruther notices at this point, Dr. Rose has pointed canine teeth and a very wolf-like quality about him. You know, now that I'm thinking through my lore, if a person has long canine teeth, and if their ring finger and middle finger are the same length, and if they have a fondness for rosé, <laughs> could be a werewolf. <laughs> 
So once so. again, you know, the name is kind of telling you. Yeah. I remember Kayla had a belly full of rosé at the prom. <laughs> <laughs> Back then I had my suspicions. She wear one. <laughs> wow. It's so weird that we're reconnecting. Yeah. yeah. And Strether tells her the story about the explosion and the mark of the shape of the hound. And she is freaked out by this. She thought the whole thing was a dream. She had hoped it wasn't real. I remembered. There on the steps, I remembered. I remembered the way of it. I used the power as we used to use it. I stood on the altar steps and I bade them to come no farther. I told them to depart in peace. They would not listen. They came on, although I warned them. And so, she leaned forward and made a curious gesture. And so, I loosed the hound of death on them. She lay back on her chair, shivering all over, her eyes closed. The doctor quickly gives her some medicine, then she says this. But then, it's all true. She said, everything, the city of the circles, the people of the crystal, everything. It is all true. Man, this is some crazy stuff here that we're getting thrown out. I know. This is not what I expected. I just thought it might be a kind of a weird ghost story sort of thing. But this is this is not that at all. Well, no, I mean, at first I think, oh, wow, somebody just exploded stuff with their mind. So we're going to be just dwelling on that. And then it. Nope, there's a whole prehistory thing about to be. Yeah. So Rose asks her about the city of circles, and she explains, There were three circles. The first circle for the chosen, the second for the priestesses, and the outer circle for the priests. And then at the center, the house of the crystal. And at this point, she traces some kind of strange shape on her forehead. Then she jolts and is confused, and she doesn't remember anything about what she was saying. So cool. You know what is also cool? That our patron and friend Stuart Huntsman recommended this story for us. In fact, he recommended all of the weird fiction by mystery author stories that we're going to be reading for October. Mm -hmm. I should have mentioned up top. That's kind of going to be our theme. Yeah. It was something that he brought to us, uh, Stuart, that sounded really good. This story in particular, and he really nailed it on this one. It's so interesting. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, we, I've got yeah. Shades of Polaris in here and a nun with lightning powers. It's it, crazy. <laughs> I don't I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. great. Dr. Rosen and Struther leave to discuss her. Mr. and Struther thinks that she must be insane because everything she was saying seems so truthful. Yeah, like she really believes it. Dr. Rose suggests that maybe it's not all crazy. Maybe there's something to it. What if she actually did do something to make that explosion? He puts forward the way that one person could destroy a multitude by touching a switch, which controlled a system of minds. Uh, it still takes the will of that person to do it. And maybe she somehow made this will manifest in a way we just don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mr. Entruther thinks it's a bit far-fetched, but Dr. Rose pulls a little A.C. Clark here and suggests that uh, mm. our technology would seem magical. To a savage, perhaps she's using natural laws that we just don't understand yet. It says, I cannot completely dismiss the possibility that a human being might be able to tap some vast destructive force and use it to further his or her ends. The means by which this was accomplished might seem to us supernatural, but it would not be so in reality. This all felt so Indiana Jones to me, actually, because Rosé seems to be angling for this power. You know, he's wolf-like and he's really interested in it. This mm -hmm. ancient destructive power that this bad guy is going to use. It just all had that you know, Indiana Jones and the Hound of Death feel to it. <laughs> Would have been better than the Crystal Skull, dude. Oh, yeah, I, for I forgot to introduce that today we have a guest. We do? Uh, she just circled him in earlier. Wow. Yeah, this week we were lucky enough. Boy, I can't believe I didn't even mention it till now. We've got the famous filmmaker Steven Spielberg on the show. What? <laughs> He's, hi guys, what's going on? 
totally agree with your analysis, Chad. Well, he's yeah. he's with you in person. No, no, we've got him over. What do you are you're using Skype, right? Yep, I'm on Skype with you guys right now. <laughs> Been listening in. Great show. I'm a big fan. You sound a lot different than what I remember. You sounded like. Mr. Spielberg. You know, it's weird to when you get behind the curtain and see people and how different they are from public persona. <laughs> that's, Glad you're on board, Stephen. We'll just we'll check in with you here and there if, if that's okay. Yeah, dude, I'll just be here smoking some OG Kush. <laughs> like to get up, burn one, and watch some blood sport in the morning. Got you guys on in the background. Cool, bro. Wow. Right. Okay. He's such a different guy. Dude, I'm learning a lot about Steven Spielberg right now. Back to the story. They talk briefly about the sign that she made on her head, like a Catholic would make a cross. And it's all very odd. Dr. Rose tells Mr. Anstruther about an experiment that he did where he gave her a real crystal to hold on to. And when he mm. gave it to her, she dropped to her knees, said a few words, and fainted. And the words that she mumbled to herself were, the crystal, then the faith still lives. You ever see anything like that happen when you worked at that crystal shop in her space? <laughs> I saw a lot of strange things. Dr. Rose said that that was two weeks ago, but he plans on using the crystal again to see if he can get to the source of her problems. Mr. Instructor asks if he can be around when he does this, and that slightly unnerves Dr. Rose, but he agrees. Yeah, he's like, are you leaving soon? <laughs> Yeah, I'm leaving soon. He goes, yeah, then I guess it's okay. <laughs> Clearly up to something. So the next day, Mr. Instructor meets at Dr. Rose's house and they go to Marie's together. He admits that he's a dabbler in occult sciences. I think Ray Liotta should play that part, man. <laughs> That's okay. That's what you chimed in for, Steven. <laughs> that guy's awesome. Are you sure that's Steven Spielberg? Because it really doesn't sound like him. I mean, that's what a Skype ID says. I don't know. It's me, dude. Okay, I can't argue with that. Director Jumanji. <laughs> Did Steven Spielberg direct Jumanji? I'll have to look it up. Yeah. For now, I'm just going to accept okay. it. I'll, I'll check on uh, the credentials later. When there, the doc talks to the nurse. Marie has a moment alone with Mr. Instruther, and she asks him if he thinks Dr. Rose is a good man. And he's a little taken aback by the question, but he thinks, yeah, he seems like a good guy. Sure. And she says, mm -hmm. he's been very kind to me. Yeah, that's a little shady, right? Yeah. It's been very kind to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dr. Rose comes back and asks her if she might try to use the crystal to look into the future. She says that it's sinful to do such a thing. They suddenly remember, oh, yeah, she's a nun. Yeah. So he changes tactics and he asks if she might try to look in the past, remember things long forgotten, and she agrees. So she holds the crystal and she seems to drift off to sleep, but then awakens in a few moments, not knowing where she is. She says that she dreamed about the crystal. The crystal was a holy emblem. I even figured to myself a second Christ, the teacher of the crystal, who died for his faith. His followers hunted down, persecuted, but the faith endured. For 15,000 full moons, I mean for 15,000 years, I was a priestess of the fifth sign in the house of the crystal. It was the first days of the coming of the sixth sign. And at that point, she flips out a bit and then she calms herself. She says, oh, I'm sorry, I was raving. I was only 16 when I entered the religious life. I had never traveled, yet I dreamed of cities, of strange people, of strange customs. Why? Now, Dr. Rose asks her if she's ever been hypnotized, and she says no. He says he's going to say words, and he wants her to say the first word that pops into her mind. The first word he says is hound, and the first thing that she says is death. Now, Mr. Instruther, <laughs> this goes on for a while. And afterwards, mm. Mr. Instruther and Rose have a talk, and it seems that there are, being able to piece this prehistory together, that there are seven signs. The sixth was death. 
but it was also referred to as the hound, while the fifth is bird or telepathy. It's all very wishy-washy, but the seventh sign is life and love, and there's no eighth sign. There's only seven signs. But Rosé protests a bit too much. He says, we are taking these mad ramblings very seriously. They're really only interesting from a medical point of view. Yeah. Uh I'm not craving power or... Mr. Edstruther says that he should keep this stuff under wraps because if it gets out, then all the psychic investigators are going to start bugging this poor woman. But Dr. Rose says, oh, I have no plans of making this public, which makes Mr. Instruther go, well, then why are you doing this? And he says, oh, uh, personal reasons. <laughs> why did he just say to help the woman? Like, she's my patient. I want to help her. But he doesn't say yeah. that. He gets all dodgy. So as Mr. Instruther leaves, he says to Dr. Rose, I wish you good luck with your investigations. I continued lightly, don't loose the hounds of death on me next time we meet. And then he replies, for a man who loved power, what a power that would be to hold every human being's life in the hollow of your hand. He said that really creepy. (laughs) Any doubt that (laughs) Mr. Instruther had about him being a a creep is quashed. He knows it. Yeah, he's he's clearly a villain. That ends Mr. Instruther's direct involvement. Now we get some after-the-fact stuff. He was able to get the doctor's notebook. And we have some entries here. August 5th have discovered that by the chosen sister M.A. means those who reproduced the race. Apparently, they were held in the highest honor and exalted above the priesthood. Contrast this with early Christians. August 9th. Have there been civilizations in the past to which ours is as nothing? Strange if it should be so, and I am the only man with the clue to it. And August 13th, Sister Marie Angelique mentioned today that in a state of grace, the gate must be closed, lest the other should command the body. Interesting, but baffling. August 18th, so the first sign is none other than words erased here. Then how many centuries will it take to reach the sixth? But if there should be a shortcut to power... Uh Uh-oh, there's that villain ambition. Uh August 20th. Have arranged for Marie Angelique to come here with the nurse. Have told her it is necessary to keep patient under morphia. Am I mad? Or shall I be the Superman with the power of death in my hands? Whoa. Later, Mr. Anstruther got a letter from Marie Angelique. She says that she knows it's not a dream. He who was guardian of the crystal revealed the sixth sign to the people too soon. Evil entered into their hearts. They had the power to slay at will, and they slew without justice in anger. They were drunk with the lust of power. When we saw this, we who were yet pure, we knew that once again we should not complete the circle and come to the sign of everlasting life. He who would have been the next guardian of the crystal was bidden to act, that the old might die and the new, after endless ages, might come again. He loosed the hound of death upon the sea, being careful not to close the circle. And the sea rose up in the shape of a hound and swallowed the land utterly. Once before I remembered this, on the altar steps in Belgium. Well, a little uh, Atlantis myth-making. Yeah. Now, she goes on to say that Dr. Rose is of the Brotherhood. He knows all the signs, but the six, and he wants to learn it from her. She says a man like him should not wield this power. And after reading that letter, hmm. Mr. Anstruther notices that he has another letter from his sister, and it says, Such an awful thing happened. You remember Dr. Rose's little cottage on the cliff? It swept away by a landslide last night. The doctor and the poor nun, Sister Marie Angelique, were killed. The debris on the beach is too awful, all piled up in a frantic mass. From a distance, it looks like a great hound. Hmm. Also, another fact here, 
A different Rose, Mr. Rose, relative to the doctor, died that same night, struck by lightning. And I think the implication—I <laughs> think the implication is that Doctor Rose would inherit some money from this dead relative, so that maybe he used yeah. this power to kill him to get this money. Which is really base, man. Come on. I know. Here I'm thinking he's like got military ambitions or something. And he's just, it was a swindle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he basically did something that you could have done without supernatural powers, like kill a person. He Hans Gruber'd us. We thought he was he had big schemes. Oh, right. And he's like, you're just an ordinary thief. He goes, I'm no, I'm, I'm quite an uncommon thief or whatever his <laughs> is. Yes. Uh, but of course he was careless and the force came back to bite him in the ass. But... Of course, it is all nonsense. Everything can be accounted for quite naturally. <laughs> that the doctor believed in Sister Marie Angelique's hallucinations merely proves that his mind, too, was slightly unbalanced. Yet, sometimes, I dream of a continent under the seas where men once lived and attained to a degree of civilization far ahead of ours. Or... Did Sister Marie Angelique remember backwards, as some say is possible? And is this city of the circles in the future and not in the past? <laughs> Nonsense. Of course, the whole thing was mere hallucination. Bam, how about that? And I also like the suggestion at the end. That's pretty chilling. That might be the future. This may come to pass. And remember that she said she wouldn't want to look into the crystal and predict the future because it was against her religion. So he just changed tactic, mm -hmm. which was a really neat trick because it made us also go, oh, then she's seeing the past. But that was simply his tactic. She could have been seeing anything. So in the end, there's implied that this might be the world that will come to be. Well, the, yeah, it gets a little confusing at that point because then they're getting this information from the future. Well, I, she's channeling it somehow, uh, but... Why does it have to be from the past? Oh. As we learned from Ghosts of the Future, that story we covered a couple of years ago. Yeah, brilliant story. That's where ghosts can come from. It's, it is surprising how this story was kind of interacting at the same time that Lovecraft stuff was out yeah. there. Yeah, it's 33. So yeah, he was still alive and writing some of his best stuff at this point. It's pretty amazing. Well, we're going to be doing more weird fiction uh, by mystery authors this month. Uh, I think another one by Agatha Christie that's a little more in the um, Great God Pan tradition, mm -hmm. I guess. That's what Steven said. I don't know. I'm going to have to, we'll gonna have find to grab out. it. And then yeah. Dorothy L. Sayers, who is traditionally known for writing mysteries, also has some weird tales. So we're going to look at those. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Stuart Huntsman once again for all these great recommendations. Yes, and I want to thank Kayla Murphy for doing such a great job reading. She's a wonderful reader. And I guess she's really fun to go to prom with. Mm, I'm sure it was fun for someone. <laughs> Kayla certainly had a good time. <laughs> But you know, she's a different person now and a great reader. And I'm really glad that she was able to jump on the show. Yeah. Also, we've got, we have a, a new guy as part of our, our crew. Yeah. Eric Peabody of uh, Viking guitar fame. He did the mixing and mastering on the Pitch Black Manor album. And uh, he's read for the show a couple of times. He's a good buddy. We needed some help in audio production. And so he's pitched in. I just wanted to acknowledge that he's been contributing to the shows the last couple of episodes. Yep. Thank you, Eric, so much for your wizardry. He is a wizard. And don't forget to pick up Mill Vale 02 from Repair of Reputation, some awesome music that's going to really fill out your Halloween listening. I also want to thank some patrons, and I'm going to start by thanking Michelle Wetzel. I'd like to thank Neil Milligan. Jonathan F. Sandage, thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny Prenitz. Paul Volpe, thank you so much. Esteban Barbero, thank you. Sylvia Loden, thank you. Peter Lopez, thank you so much. Brandeis Howard, thank you. And I'd like to finally thank Jacob Ryan. We're going to be back with more mysterious authors doing weird stuff. Cool, man!
can I come? I'm be long for that. We'll have. We're gonna talk about this offline because you are clearly not Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it took me a while, but I'm i starting to put two and two together here. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it is. We'll see. All right. Well, if it is Steven, we'll have him on again. But uh, for now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and I'm Steven Spielberg, dude. <laughs> <laughs> And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!